open house right after service today. Amen. I'm going to jump right into the word. Would anyone like to hear a word from the Lord this morning? Ooh, that's good. That's good. So would I. So would I. Amen. Amen. Well, here it is. We have finally arrived, New Life family. It has been one year, five months, and 14 days since we started on our journey walking through the gospel of Mark. And today marks our final sermon in this series. Amen. I I hope somebody's been blessed by this time. Amen. I hope somebody has been encouraged as we've walked through the story of Jesus point by point, story by story, looking up close and personal at the ministry of Jesus Christ. Mark is one of the places that when I'm talking with people that don't yet know the Lord, uh, that's one of the places I I, I encourage them to, to stick their nose in the book and look at the gospel of Mark. Because it is a unique gospel in that it it, it keeps you up close and personal on the doing of Jesus. There's less red ink if you have a a, a red letter Bible in Mark than there is in Matthew or or John. but, But you see him moving from place to place and doing the things that Jesus does. And I just think when the Holy Spirit gets a hold of someone seeing Jesus up close and personal like that, it's a powerful thing. And so for me as a pastor, but also as a hearer of many of these messages, I have been convicted at times, encouraged at times, built up at times, brought low sometimes before God in repentance. And I pray that it has been that experience for many of us today. Amen. And over this last year plus. Well, this is our final sermon, and I'll be looking at Mark chapter 16, 1 through 8. And somebody may say, well, why is 1 through 8 your final sermon? Hi, Alan. How you doing, brother? <laughs> Alan just came in waving to me. Amen. I think that's a Dallas Cowboys jersey. You, 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 brother, you just missed my talking about repentance, but we'll talk after service. Here we go. Here we go. So some of you may have a Bible and you see that there are verses after verse 8. There's verses 9 through 20. But why Why are we ending at verse 8? It, it's, it's fairly simple why we're doing that. And it would be really good if I got my clicker and figured out where it is. Is it there? Is it there? Where did I put my clicker? I don't know. Is it under my Bible? No. Is it my jacket? No. I have lost the clicker. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. I got to get your number after service. For those of you who don't know, that's my wife. Amen. That's my wife. Amen. Praise the Lord. Thank you, baby. So why is this the end as we go through Mark? Well, simply, I'm just going to mention two things real quickly. In most of your Bibles, if you have a newer Bible, if you have a King James or a a New King James, you might not have this. But if you have a a newer version of the Bible, say something like this, uh, the earliest manuscripts and some other ancient witnesses do not have verses 9 through 20. What that means is when the King James Bible was put together, an amazing version of Scripture, but they only had 10 or 15 manuscripts 
uh, of the Greek that they use. Since we've discovered so many more, we have nearly 6,000 manuscripts of the, the New Testament now. And going back to just in the decades after the, the originals were written. And so we can see more closely what was in those original documents. And so uh, also some of the early witnesses to the scripture don't talk about these verses. So they weren't in there originally, but soon thereafter, in probably the second century, uh, some folks looked at this and said, this is a little troubling. We're going to talk about this today, the way this gospel ends. Let, let's put in some stuff from the other gospels. Let's look at some other things. And so it got in there. But it's not only these verses, but there are other verses as you read through your New Testament that we've been able to discern and look at all of the manuscripts that we have of Scripture, look at the very earliest ones and say, this was not original to the author. We do our best to do that. And in Mark, you have these verses uh, that I've listed up there that are not in. So if you thumb through Mark and you look at it, go to those verses and you'll see that there's either a text note or something else that says that wasn't in the uh, the original manuscripts or the earliest manuscripts that we have. So that's why we're ending at verse 8. I believe that what we have from the Lord, from the Holy Spirit, and through the hand of uh, Mark is the completion of this gospel at Mark 16 and verse 8. So let's stand up together today, and we're going to read through this. Together Now, what we're going to do, I'm going to read from this first slide through verse 3. And then in the next couple of slides, um, I'll have you read the next slide and then the last verse, we'll read it together. So when it's your time to read, read nice and loud. But I'm starting at verse 1, chapter 1, because I want to remind us all what this gospel is about in the first place. So the scripture says this in the beginning, the the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the son of God. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James and Salome brought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus body very early on the first day of the week after sunrise. They were on their way to the tomb and they asked each other, who will roll roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? read this last verse together. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. A strange way 
to end this presentation of Jesus. But here's my main point today as we've gone through the story of Jesus. It's all about Jesus. Tell someone next to you, it's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. Let me pray. Father God, I pray that as we come to these last few moments of studying this book, at least for this time uh, in, in new life, that you would bless this time. Lord, help us to hear what you want to say to us, even through this strange ending to this gospel. Be with us in the coming moments and let your name, your name, your name, your name be glorified high and lifted up. We pray it in the mighty and matchless name of Jesus Christ. Amen and amen. You may be seated. It's all about Jesus. This is a strange ending. Does anyone agree with me? It it seems like you just left me hanging, Mark. And and we know behind Mark is the Holy Ghost, right? Holy Ghost, you're leaving me hanging right here. Mark, you're leaving me hanging. Preacher, you're leaving me hanging. What is going on here? Well, let's just recap this story right here for a moment. Um, it is early on the first day of the week after the Sabbath. And these three women, we see this in the other gospels as well, get some spices together and they want to properly anoint Jesus body. Things were done in a rush. They weren't able to do that uh, before. And so they're going to properly anoint his body while they're on the way to the tomb. They're thinking, oh, gosh, we forgot something. That stone in front of uh, the tomb is humongous. And we're not going to be able to get in there. What are we going to do? So they're fretting as they go. How will we get in this place? But when they get close to it, they see the stone is rolled away. Wow, look at that. And they have a little bit of courage because with the stone rolled away, they, they find their way into the tomb. And they go in it. But as they do that, the scripture says they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side. Scripture says they were alarmed. Now, this young man sitting there in a white robe, we know is an angel. Mark doesn't come out and say there was an angel there. He says there was a young man. How do we know that young man was an angel? I'm glad you asked. Just a couple things very basic to that. Number one, the way he is described, even with the word a young man, in that time in Judaism, they would often describe angels this way. They would use the same word for a young man. And then we see he's not dressed just in his regular clothes, but he's dressed in this White robe and the first words out of his mouth. How many times have you heard heard this from angels? Don't be alarmed or be not afraid because they're a little bit scary to be around sometimes, I guess. But he's sitting there. And so this angel, they, they come to and he says, don't be afraid. You're looking for, and and he he gives him very specific information. Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus was a common name, right? This isn't Jesus from Philly. This is Jesus from Nazareth. You're looking for him, but he's not here. I got some good news for you. He is risen. And he's risen just like he said he would rise. 
See the place where they laid him? He says, but he says, but go tell the disciples. And by the way, don't forget Peter. Please don't forget Peter. Don't forget Peter. He needs to hear this. Jesus is going ahead of you into Galilee. That's the place where you'll see him. It's up back in Galilee where y'all were before. Go to Galilee and he says, and he'll see you right there just as he told you. In Mark chapter chapter 14 and verse 28, Jesus had told them, after I rise, I'm going to meet with you up in Galilee. So he says, do that. Go there. Tell them to go there and meet with Jesus. And then we get this strange ending, trembling and bewildered. The women went out uh, and fled from the tomb. The scripture says they said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. We're going to come back to that. In a little bit, but I, I want to start just for a few minutes and, and just walk us through what Mark is, the gospel of Mark. What is it? The gospel of Mark is an ancient biography of the ministry, the life, and the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It was written in order to be read out loud in the churches. It's actually written in three movements, like a play. You have the first movement of the Gospel of Mark that ends in the middle of chapter 8, where Jesus is doing all this ministry in Galilee. Then from the middle of 8 through chapter 10, Jesus is on this journey to Jerusalem. That's act number 2. And then the final act is his time in Jerusalem with his passion, his death, his resurrection. All that goes on in the final act. It's meant to be read aloud. And not only that, it's meant for the whole gospel to be read at one time. Amen. Has anyone ever done that with Mark's gospel? I would encourage you to do that. It holds together. It's a fabulous, fabulous piece of writing that has been guided by the Holy Spirit. Now, I want you to remember that in... uh, the ancient world, only about 10% of the people could actually read. And Mark's gospel stands out in some ways from the other gospels for its colorful expressions that it uses. Mark often gives express details that you don't see in the other gospels. And it also has this style of fast moving action, particularly towards the beginning over and over again. He uses a Greek word, which means and immediately, immediately Jesus did this. And then immediately Jesus did this. It's a fast moving story meant to be read to audiences, to hear and learn of the life of Jesus. And here's the interesting thing is that this written gospel of Mark is an accumulation of Peter's preaching that now Mark has put down on paper. So Peter must have been an awesome preacher, y'all. And so Mark is just like, wow, I'm spellbound. Let me get that down. He's written down the preaching of Peter. But there's a few elements that are of interest in Mark's gospel. One of them is the idea of paradox. You see things contrasted that, that, that you wouldn't normally see except for the way that Mark brings them out. He weaves them together and he takes you from one place to another place and then back to that place. 
don't know if anyone ever watched the show, This Is Us. Uh, but I watched that show a little bit and you didn't know if you were in Pittsburgh in 1980 or if you were in Philadelphia in 2017. It went back and forth. That's the way Mark does. He does this as an expert, Holy Ghost inspired storyteller. He brings us in and out, but you see these paradoxes. Time after time, the disciples don't get it. They don't understand, but the demons get it. The demons understand. Time after time, outsiders from Israel, the Gentiles who, who are considered dogs and outsiders, they get it. But faithful Jewish people, and especially the leaders, miss it completely. The pattern repeats itself over and over again, even at the very end of this gospel. But Mark's purpose for this was clear from the beginning. As I said, and as he writes in chapter 1, verse 1, the beginning of the good news about the Messiah, the Son of God. So seeing the faults, seeing the flaws, seeing the foibles of even his most devout followers and believers, draws those who are hearing this story to find their hope, not in Peter, not in the disciples, not even in these women at the very end, but in Jesus and in him alone. That's where we're going to find our hope. Another theme we see throughout it is this secrecy, the gospel, the secrecy, this, this, this gradual revelation of Jesus, who he is. It's not made plain, uh, all the time, but it unfolds, and we see this again at the end. At his crucifixion, remember, most of the disciples had fled. We learn from another place that John was actually there. These women were there. But when Jesus dies, did they say, oh, praise God, he is the Son of God, and he will rise on the third day? They don't say that. They don't say that. They are dejected. They are broken but a Gentile Roman soldier says, surely this man was the son of God. People that get it are not the people that you would think would get it. And then we see this even here at the resurrection. The angel fully understands who this is and what has happened. But the women at the empty tomb, they are befuddled. They, they can't figure this out. Listen, isn't this your story as well? Isn't this my story as well? At times in our walk of faith, strong as we might be in our faith, in times of crisis and difficulty, we wonder, God, what are you doing? God, where are you? I don't understand you at all. Have you been there? That is the walk of faith. And these women are crushed. Now, here's an interesting thing. The disciples, the 11 who remained after Jews, they could not get over the fact that Jesus was going to die. They kind of lost their way because they couldn't get over the fact that Jesus was going to die. But these women, they couldn't get over the fact that he wasn't still dead. <laughs> they come to grips with the fact that Jesus is going to die. But now he's risen. I don't get it. We got these spices here. They, they're, they're a little bit lost for a minute. But this ending that is used here 
actually serves to focus this whole story just the way Mark wrote it. Everybody else is weak. Everybody else is frail. Everybody else is flawed. But Jesus stands alone. So Mark leaves us at the end of this gospel in this strange and unresolved space. Now, his purpose has never been to answer every question anyone could ever ask. Amen? Because if it was, he'd still be writing the book. We can ask some questions. That was never his purpose. His purpose was to point to the story of Jesus and let us know who he is. But Mark is not alone in emphasizing this struggle. It's interesting, in all four Gospels, uh, there are, the writers show the failure of disciples to understand Jesus after the resurrection. In, in, in Matthew's Gospel, uh, in, verse, in chapter 28, Jesus appears right to the 11 and he's talking to them. And, and the, the writer Matthew puts in there by the Holy Spirit, but some of them did not believe. Some of them were still struggling to believe. In Luke's gospel, two disciples are walking with Jesus all day long, miles and miles. They're walking with Jesus and they just think he's some stranger that doesn't know what's really going on in Jerusalem until he breaks bread with them and they see this is Jesus. And even in John's gospel, Mary Magdalene, one of these women that we see here at the grave, Mary Magdalene, she has a conversation with Jesus and thinks he's the gardener. (laughs) So there are all these problems. Here's the difference with Mark. In the end of his gospel, He does not give any account of anyone seeing the resurrected body of Jesus Christ. It's declared. He's gone before you. He's going to be in Galilee. It's declared, but it's not demonstrated at the end of this gospel. And so here's the question I want us to grapple with just for a few minutes today. Why does God allow this gospel to end in such an unfulfilling way? Well, let's look at a few possible answers to that. Number one, Mark's readers are very aware of Jesus' resurrection appearances. They are very aware. By the time Mark writes this, now, we don't know exactly when he did. Some people think it's as early as the 40s. Some think people think it's it's up into the 60s, but not the 1960s, by the way. But People differ on the date when it was written, but by the time it was written, the gospel has already spread like wildfire throughout the Roman Empire, and there's eyewitnesses to Jesus' resurrection everywhere. Mark's not writing to fulfill our little itch. As a matter of fact, 1 Corinthians was likely written before Mark's gospel. And in 1 Corinthians, Paul tells us that at one time, Jesus appeared to 500 people at the same time. There's witnesses all over the place. Mark doesn't have a burden to prove the resurrection. It's everywhere. Mary Magdalene and the women 
we know that they did eventually go and tell the disciples and Peter. We see that in the other gospels. The stories were out there. The oral history was out there. People knew that. But Mark does hear what Mark often does. He doesn't just tell us what we already know. He gives us a detail that you don't know. You know the women eventually told the disciples. You know that they told Peter. But here's what you don't know. These women were scared to death themselves. Here's what you don't know about this. That they were initially, these women, these faithful and famous women, one of whom became known as the apostle to the apostles. These women themselves were overcome by the news. What a human thing that is. How very human. And that leads me to the next point, which is simply this. Mark is consistent throughout his gospel of not making people, especially Jesus' disciples, the heroes of the story. You're not going to find any heroes here except for Jesus. He's the hero. And and here's what's interesting. Peter... He, he kind of looks bad in all of the gospels, but he looks especially bad in Mark's gospel, doesn't he? Like he has, he must have like extra joints in his body because over and over again, he has the ability to put his foot right into his mouth. I don't know how he does that, but he's very skilled at that. He does it over and over again. He looks bad, but here's what's interesting. This story is coming from Peter's preaching. Peter knows the value of telling on himself. Amen. Peter knows the value of confessing his sin out loud. Let me let you know he's able to do that. So for us too often hiding and pretending and putting on a show can become what we do as believers. But that has never been a Christian value in our age. We are becoming more and more expert at cultivating a public image. Now we can all do that online. Online, I just look so good. My family is always on top of the world. Things are all together. Come to my house one week and walk with me. We'll see how true that picture is. Amen. It's a little bit messy in the Smith house. Your house too. Thank you, sister. I know the rest of y'all got it all together. You got it all going on. But but it can be a little messy sometimes. But we have to swim against the stream of our culture in order not to pretend to be something that we are not. And I, I call this celebrity culture. Sometimes we only think of celebrities as movie stars or, you know, sports stars and others who have big, big celebrity status. But celebrity can happen on the smallest level. It can happen in your family. You want to stand out a certain way. You cultivate an image. It can happen in a friendship group. It can happen in the church. We cultivate an image to become something that we're really not, but we want people to think we are. Here's what I want you to see. When we live to impress others, we are deciding to put a spotlight on ourselves and push Jesus into the background. Jesus, you you can just stay there for a while. I want people to check me out. See, when we put that spotlight, it's a specific kind of spotlight, isn't it? It's not the one that reveals all the flaws and the mess. 
It's one we are, where we are all Botoxed up. We are all painted up. We are looking our very finest so much so that we don't even look like we actually look like. Spotlight distorts us. Here's another piece here. Following from that, we should be extremely wary of narratives that exalt human beings. Stop there for a minute. That's in any field, in any place. But now here's the emphasis. I want to emphasize this, especially Christian leaders, pastors, bishops, prophets, missionaries, as if they are a different class of human being, as if they are not flesh and blood. I always say to people and in, 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 in the church circles I've been in a lot of times, you know, I'll even be greeted like this. How are you, man of God? What do you say to that? I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. You know, but man of God, I always remind people when we say man of God, it's not inappropriate, but the first part of that is man. <laughs> this is a human being who is subject to the temptations and the faults and the inner wrestle with sin, just like anyone else. We've got to be careful of exalting Christian leaders. We need to resist idolizing leaders. When we idolize leaders, it actually undermines our faith in Jesus Christ. Even if the leader never lets you down, which, by the way, is almost impossible, you end up with a faith that's dependent on a person whose name isn't Jesus. You end up in a place where your faith is dependent on a person always getting it Right. And that, brothers and sisters, just does not happen. You can ask the elders of this church and the people I walk closely with here. I don't always get it right. I've made plenty of mistakes. So does everyone else. We cannot idolize leaders. We, we should have learned this through Christian history. I, I, I was in a seminary. Uh, where we talked a lot about, about John Calvin, a brilliant man, a man that God used in great ways, but a man also who had his weaknesses and faults. And in his church in Geneva, they actually put to death a man named Servetus because his, 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 his beliefs didn't match up with the beliefs of the people in Calvin's church. There were a couple things, but one of them, God forbid, this man was called an Anabaptist. An Anabaptist means that he does not believe in baptizing babies. And that just didn't fit. So what do you do with someone that doesn't believe in that? I think we should have him killed. That's what they did. That wasn't the only thing with Servetus, but that's what they did. Martin Luther, the great reformer of the church in the 16th century, he is courageous and he nails the 95 theses on the capital, on the, the door of the castle of Wittenberg and the reformation starts from there and it moves forward. But we have to know that Luther in his old age was extremely anti-Semitic. 
He had a, a visceral hatred for Jewish folks, so much so that Hitler and the Nazis could go right to Luther's writings, what Luther said, and they could underscore their desire to exterminate the Jewish people. Listen, if you go close enough through history with any of our heroes of faith, you're going to find that. But, but let me be clear about this. Respecting leaders is a biblical thing. Amen. I, I want to put it that way, but idolizing leaders is always out of order. It just doesn't work. I, I love this. The fact that God does us a great favor in the scriptures. Every great leader in the scriptures that has much written about them at all, their sin also gets exposed, right? Abraham, the father of the faith, the great faithful one, when he goes down into Egypt and his, his wife is looking fine, she's looking good, and, and he says, you know, Pharaoh might have an eye out for my wife. I got a plan. I'm going to trick my girl out. Sarah, I want you to just tell him you're my sister. He tricks out his wife. He says, you can take her. Yeah, that's my sister. That's not my wife because I don't want you to hurt me, Pharaoh. My goodness, that's the father of our faith, y'all. <laughs> Moses, the writer of Torah, the great leader who brings the people through the Red Sea. Moses has an anger problem. I know nobody here does, but Moses did. Moses has an anger problem, and at one point, he strikes the rock when God told him to speak to the rock. At another point earlier, he had killed an Egyptian while he was yet in Egypt. Moses had an anger problem. God exposes it. We know some of David's problems. Somebody ought to say amen right now. David had a lust problem. He looked at Bathsheba, and he said, I just have to have her as my wife. David, you already got some wives, man. But he had to have a Bathsheba. And not only that, you think of the fact that he was absolutely cold-blooded in the way he had her husband murdered on the front lines of the army that not only killed him, but killed many other men as well. He was cold-blooded. But the scripture says he was also a man after God's own heart. Scripture lets us know these things. Mark's readers are aware of the resurrection appearances. Mark uh, is consistent in not making people, especially Jesus' disciples, the heroes of the story. And finally, why does God allow the gospel to end in such an unfulfilling way? Well, here it is. The ambiguity of this ending, the, the very strangeness of this ending invites you and invites me into this story. Mark stands out to us as pointing us to Jesus and claims to be the beginning of the gospel of Jesus. Now, when I say that again, I want you to get this. In other words, what he's saying is even when his gospel is finished in chapter 16 and verse 8, it is still just the beginning of the gospel of Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. It's still the beginning. Well, if that's true, then where are we right now? Let me say it this way. The church is the ongoing revelation of Jesus as Savior and as Lord of heaven and earth. 
This written gospel is the beginning, but you and I are the extension of that. You are the means by which people are pointed to the one true and perfect revelation of God, Jesus Christ. The gospel is made real in a broken world by the restored and redeemed people of God. Repenting people, broken people, confessing people, forgiving people, loving people. By the people of God, we are the extension of this gospel that points people to Jesus Christ. So for just a moment, I want, I want everyone to stand for a minute. I'm going to do something together with you. So I want us to take a moment, just take a moment to look around this sanctuary here at New Life. I want us to figure out what this really means. Look at your brothers and look at your sisters who are gathered here with you today. Now, just hold on for a second. I'm going to tell you to do something, but then I'm going to give you more specific instructions. I'd like you to greet some brothers and sisters around you if you're comfortable with that. And even if you have to move out of your seat a little bit, I'd like you to to greet some people that might be different than you in some ways. Older people greet younger people. Younger people greet older people. Different ethnicities. Let's, let's mingle a little bit here in the sanctuary for just a few minutes if you can do that. And as you greet your brothers and sisters, here's what I'd like you to say. And you say it back and forth to each other. Sister or brother, I need you. Please help me to see Jesus more clearly. Amen? You know what to do now? So let's just take a few minutes and just do that together. I'm going to go to you first, brother. Brother, okay, I need to see this here. I need you. Please help me to see Jesus more clearly. Amen. Amen. Sister Marie, bless you. Thank you. I know it is. Help me to see Jesus more clearly. Oh, I will. Help me. You have. Oh, gosh. Hey, brother. I'm Ken. Nice to meet you. I'm Ken. I'm Larry. God bless you, brother. Hey, I need your help. Help me to see Jesus more clearly. Amen. 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 Bless you, brother. Brother, bless you. Bless you. Bless you, brother. God bless you. Hey, I need your help. Help me to see Jesus more clearly. Amen. Bless you, brother. Very, very, Amen. Thank you. Bless you, brother. Amen. Amen. Let's bring it back together, y'all. Praise the Lord. Let's bring this back together.
bring it back together. I need you. Please help me see Jesus more clearly. Looks like I'm just going to have to start preaching again or nothing's going to happen here. I started it. It's my fault. Brothers and sisters, if we can bring it back together, I got one last little point I want to make. And here's the last point I want to make today in this word. The ending of Mark's gospel, bless you brother, the ending of Mark's gospel shows us that the center of Christianity is not Jerusalem. It's not, it's not even Palestine. He doesn't say, you would think he said, let, let, let's go back into Jerusalem. That's the holy place. But he says, no, go to Galilee. And listen, Galilee is not the center either. The center is wherever the people of God are, Jesus says, where two or three of you are gathered, there I am in the midst. That's the center. It centers on God's people. This strange ending, I agree with you, it's a strange ending. I I understand why someone would like to clean it up and make it look nice. But it invites us into this story and it says, where are you going to meet Jesus? Where will you meet Jesus this week? Where will you come before him and acknowledge you are the Christ? You are the Messiah. You are the Son of God. You are my only hope. You are the one that I love and give my life to. He dwells now in his people by his spirit to the glory of God the Father. As I close, let me say this. We're called to be a people that make disciples of all nations. That's in our vision. That's in our mission. How do we do that? We do that by ensuring that we are constantly being a people who are equipped to live out God's mission. We do that by serving faithfully in ministry. We do that by connecting in meaningful ways with our brothers and sisters in Christ. And we do that by engaging our neighbors in meaningful ways so that we might point them to the good news of Jesus Christ. In the coming eight weeks, we'll be looking at those four things. We'll be looking through that in our new uh, uh, mission statement. Join with me in joining into the story of Jesus and living this out together to the glory of God. Let me pray. Father God, we are so thankful and grateful for the story of Jesus. Not a story made up, but a story told of the faithfulness and the goodness and the love of God who would come from heaven to earth. The eternal one who could create everything that exists by merely speaking it into existence. The one who reigns and rules and yet decides to become a human being. Allows himself to be 
tempted in every way like we are, allows himself to be beaten and brutalized by people even to the point of death and allows himself to take on the weight of the sins of the world. Oh God, you're good. May our lives be signs and markers pointing in one direction to Jesus Christ, the only one who can save. We give you glory, honor, and praise this day. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together and worship one last time.